Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by our news editor, Nick Bostock, and senior reporter, Ellie Philpotts, for our regular review on the news from primary care. Coming up, we're talking about Labour's plans for how it will reform primary care if it wins the next general election. We're looking at a report on retention of staff in general practice by London-wide LMCs and how staff shortages are threatening the future of practices. And we're discussing what impact an ageing population is having on workload in general practice. Finally, our good news story this week is about diabetes. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, last week, Labour's Shadow Health and Social Care Secretary, Wes Streeting, gave a speech at health think tank The King's Fund, setting out how his party planned to reform primary care should it win the next election. The speech followed two press release announcements earlier in the week, one revealing that Labour had plans for thousands more GPs and would guarantee face-to-face GP appointments, and the other claiming that nearly 5 million patients every month wait more than a fortnight for a GP appointment. So Nick, we know that Wes Streeting's been critical of the partnership model in the past, and he called the way GPs are funded murky, in quotes there. What did he have to say about how he sees general practice working under a future Labour government? Wes Streeting hasn't been the, the biggest fan of GP partnerships. As you mentioned, he said earlier this year that general practice funding was a murky, opaque business and that he was minded to phase out the whole system of GP partners and to look at salary GPs working in modern practices alongside other health professionals. That statement was widely interpreted as meaning he wanted to nationalise general practice, which is an idea that at least one recent Conservative health and social care secretary has also flirted with. But in this latest speech at the King's Fund, where Streeting was clear that nationalising general practice was off the table for Labour, He said it would be hugely expensive and totally unnecessary. Having said that, it's not as if he's seen the light and decided that partnerships aren't so bad. After all, he definitely still wants change. And he said in this speech that the model of general practice needs to be looked at. And he said that in future, it may look different in different parts of the country. And in that respect, his thinking seems to be broadly in line with the recent Hewitt review, which called the national GP contract a barrier to innovation and said that there was a need for more local flexibility around GP contracting arrangements. And West Reading also said that GP partnerships were a model that's in decline. And he claimed that within a few years, salaried GPs are going to be the majority rather than the minority as they currently are. The significance Mr Streeting seems to attach to that balance between partners and salary GPs is quite interesting. And you could read that as him suggesting he won't have to nationalise general practice because the decline of partnerships means it's heading in that direction anyway. But although numbers of GP partners are in decline, as things stand, the vast majority of practices are still run by GP partnerships. And arguably the fall in numbers of GP partners doesn't reflect the model being broken. It reflects the fact that currently general practice is underfunded and overstretched. And GPs in all roles are struggling with the pressure and perhaps partners often more than others because they've less control over their working hours than salaried or locum GPs, for example. It's worth looking back at the response from GPs when Wes Streeting first criticised partnerships a few months ago as well. One group of GPs wrote to him to point out that it was partnerships that made general practice the most cost-effective part of the NHS, arguing that you might need two or three salaried GPs or managers to take on the workload of an individual GP partner. 
and that without partners, the idea that general practice could have absorbed the huge rise in workload, for example, during and since the COVID pandemic is unimaginable. Um, So seen that way, far from being broken itself, the partnership model was perhaps part of what stopped the health service as a whole from breaking during the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to someone the other day, actually, and, and we were talking about the partnership model. And they were saying it's not the model that's broken, but like you said there, it's the fact that it's been under-resourced for a number of years now. And also, there's just not enough GPs, and that's what makes it harder for partnerships to do their job. And, and that's not going to be fixed by a salaried service either, um, unless we get more GPs. Primary care is not just general practice, though. And he was talking, West Streeting was talking about widening the number of services that are available to patients in the community as well. What did he have to say about that and how that would fit in alongside GP practices? Well, Streeting talked about shifting the focus of healthcare out of hospitals into the community. And he said it was time to make the NHS as much a neighbourhood health service as it is a national health service. I think part of that is to do with the idea of services being shaped to fit local needs. But it's also about this point about more services being available locally. Labour says it will double the number of district nurses being trained and it will train 5,000 new health visitors to boost community-based healthcare services. But it's also promising more treatment available close to home or at home. Wes Streeting talked about people receiving treatment for minor injuries like sprains and cuts, as well as tests and scans without going to hospital. He also talked about delivery of some elements of general practice, such as vaccinations, blood testing at scale to free up more time for health professionals to spend with patients. And he talked too about community pharmacy taking on more work from general practice and about things like community mental health hubs and mental health support in schools as a way to ease pressure on general practice. There was also a mention of reducing bureaucracy and red tape for general practice, for example, by making it possible for opticians to refer patients directly to hospital rather than having to go via a GP. Broadly, in terms of how this fits with general practice, it's largely about expanding services that fit around GP practices in community settings so that some of the current unsustainable demand is soaked up elsewhere. Ellie, he also acknowledged that the biggest challenge facing the NHS was the workforce shortage, didn't he? And he had some pretty critical words for the government about its failure to publish the workforce plan. Yeah, so the government's been promising this NHS workforce plan for quite a few months now. And we've actually seen no signs of it anywhere. And West Reading talked about this. He said it was completely unforgivable that it hasn't published this plan. But we do know that a lot of work on it has already been done. And Streeting described the plan as simply sitting in the top drawer of Steve Barclay's desk, which is not ideal. So Labour says that action on a workforce is desperately needed. And they do have their own plans for how to tackle this, which we'll maybe come on to in a bit. But we do know that the GP workforce is, of course, in a terrible state. And West Streeting did also highlight this. So in 2015, as a reminder, the Conservatives promised to increase the workforce by 5,000 GPs. And since then, it's actually shrunk by 2,000. So on this, Streeting said that obviously the GPs left behind are really feeling quite overwhelmed by the level of current demand. As you said, we have been waiting for months and months and months for this plan. And every time we speak to the government, it's always imminent. Do we actually have any idea about when it will be published? No, sadly not. So the Department of Health and Social Care have said it will be published shortly. Um, So I asked them for an update the other day. 
And they decided that the workforce plan, when it arrives, will focus on the long term. So we know that when it does arrive, it will be looking into things like the right number of staff with the right skills to transform high quality services for the future. But it's also not clear whether they're going to make any commitments about actual numbers or how much detail it's going to go into. What did West Streeting have to say specifically about Labour's plans for the future workforce? Streeting went over Labour plans, which they've talked about before, and this includes things like expanding medical training places to 15,000 a year, so that's double the current total. As you mentioned earlier, there was a press release last week that claimed that this would deliver thousands more GPs. But from the details we've had, it's not clear at all how many of this 15,000 would translate into actual GPs or whether Labour has any specific plans around GP numbers. He also talked about his frustrations that thousands of straight A students each year are being turned away from studying medicine. That's simply because the government won't fund them at the same time as recruiting more people from overseas to work in the NHS than those that are training here at home. So Streeting said he wouldn't really go into much more detail until he's been able to see the current government's own workforce plan. But he did point out the moral challenges with taking people from countries that desperately need their own staff and then denying opportunities to people who want careers in the NHS close at home. So obviously, you know, new doctors and GPs take years to train. And he was asked about that and what he's going to do to retain more GPs, because we know that doctors leaving the profession is one of the the main problems that we're facing. And while he didn't share many concrete plans, he did talk about reducing GPs' workload and pressures in the here and now to kind of give them a sense of there being light at the end of the tunnel. And Streeton did also accuse the government's lack of engagement of junior doctors when they were striking recently as a factor towards a rock bottom morale that can cause NHS staff to walk out. So where Streeting did, you know, as you mentioned, he did acknowledge the need to keep the brilliant staff we already have in the NHS. But I think the extent of what he's said on that goes back to the points we discussed about building up the other primary care services in the community to take some of the pressure off of general practice. It's largely around that that his uh, his plans revolve. And there certainly isn't anything from Labour about how they'd turn around underfunding of core general practice services or about restoring GP pay to the level it was at a decade or so ago, for example. As with the current government, the focus seems to be much more on training more doctors rather than really mapping out how to reverse the loss of the current workforce. And given that the fully qualified full-time equivalent GP workforce is currently more than 2,000 doctors short of the level it was at in 2015, as Ellie mentioned a minute ago, and continuing to fall, that seems like a big gap in the plans. Yeah, definitely. The other thing I mentioned at the start of this was that second press release they put out last week about five million patients every month waiting more than a fortnight for a GP appointment. Wes Streeting was really clear at the King's Fund event that Labour was not trying to have a go at GPs. Labour was basically having a go at the government. That's the term he used for leaving um, general practice so understaffed. But those figures are a bit questionable, aren't they, Nick? Yeah, they are. If you look around GP practice websites, you'll find loads offering appointments that can be booked a month or more in advance. You know, patients who need regular checkups, perhaps with a long-term condition or multiple long-term conditions, might book in regular appointments to come back and see their GP. And for any patient, it's not uncommon for a GP to say during an appointment, come back in a month and we'll see how this looks. But those statistics that are being used to suggest that patients face long waits for appointments don't differentiate between appointments booked ahead and appointments for which there was a genuine long wait. If I book an appointment for a month from now, in the statistics, it's indistinguishable from a four-week wait. 
The point here is that GPs are being bashed with a statistic that might simply reflect really efficient general practice. If a practice is really good at booking patients in for regular appointments to manage their long-term illness, there's every chance a politician will come along and point them out as failing to offer timely access. One bit of good news on this is that from this year, practices should be able to exception report appointments deliberately booked in advance. So in future, it should be possible to identify genuine waits of over two weeks and to keep those separate from routine advance bookings. That's all part of the investment and impact fund target around access, isn't it? That's part of the contract for this year for primary care networks. Anyway, that's a bit of an aside there. But so do we have any reaction from GPs or anyone else about Labour's plans? You know, have people welcomed them as a potential solution to some of the problems the NHS is facing or are they just all still a bit too vague? The BMA GP committee welcomed some elements of Labour's plans. They were pleased to see Labour acknowledging pressure on general practice uh, and agreed with the idea of building up community services to ease pressure on GPs. And the GP committee also said the plans offered a glimmer of hope for the future of general practice and, you know, urged the government to take on parts of what Labour's promising. But they said that short-term measures to help GPs need to go further Labour promised to reduce red tape, but the BMA highlighted a need to invest to improve archaic NHS IT infrastructure and crumbling NHS premises. And it also said Labour should commit to scrapping the imposed contract for 2023-24. Before we move on, I'd just like to highlight that MIMS Learning Live is taking place in London on Friday the 9th of June. This one-day event is organised by our colleagues on MIMS Learning. There'll be five streams providing CPD learning on topics including women's health, dermatology, cardiovascular medicine, respiratory care and much more. Each stream provides delegates with 5.5 CPD hours of learning. You can register for your free place and find out more information, including the full programme, at mimslearninglive.com. Moving on, another story we covered last week was about a new report on retention in general practice from London-wide LMCs, which warned of untenable workloads suffocating the profession and causing staff to leave in greater numbers every year. We talked on the podcast recently about data from London-wide LMCs, which showed that practices in the capital at risk of closure had doubled in a year as GP vacancies increased. So Nick, what was this new report about and what exactly did it have to say? One of the lines that really stood out from the report was a warning that the role of an NHS GP has become untenable for the significant majority of doctors in primary care. Working in general practice should be one of the most rewarding careers a doctor can have because of the opportunities it offers to to build long-term relationships with patients as part of a community. But it says that the impossible pressure that practices are under has meant that for many GPs, the meaning and joy of the role has been replaced by anxiety, depression and burnout. You mentioned the vacancy figures from London-wide LMCs that we've reported on previously. And this report highlights those gaps in the GP workforce again. It looks at pressure on general practice and the threat to the future of practices in the capital. And it looks at some of the potential solutions. So... Figures from London-wide LMCs show that around half of practices in the capital have at least one unfilled GP post, and around 5% of practices in London were considering closure in December last year, compared with only 2% a year earlier. So it's getting significantly worse. 
And although those figures perhaps don't seem huge, the concern is that we're approaching a tipping point that could see far more practices at risk unless something changes. You also spoke to London-wide LMC's Deputy Chief Executive, Dr Lisa Harrod-Rothwell, and she had a really stark warning about the figures highlighted in the report, didn't she? Dr Harrod-Rothwell said that we've been talking about a workforce crisis in general practice for a long time, but that the situation now is really, really worrying. She told me that around 40% of practices in London that have GP posts vacant are short of two or more GPs. And one of the things the report mentions is that long-term vacancies drive unsustainable workload for staff that are in post and destabilise struggling practices further. And when this process sets in, it can be really difficult to turn around because doctors may be less enthusiastic about joining practices that are in difficulty. So Dr. Harrod Rothwell said general practice is starting to tip into what she called spiralling attrition, where struggling practices fall over and then the dispersal of their lists heaps pressure on neighbouring practices that can also start to struggle. The report mentions that one practice going under can actually destabilise practices across a large area. And we know that around 400 GP practices have closed or merged in England just since the start of the COVID pandemic. That's England-wide rather than a London figure. That disruption is something that's fairly common already. And this report suggests that we could be close to tipping over into it becoming far more widespread because of all these practices with a significant number of vacancies that makes them vulnerable. It's a pretty grim picture, really. But I mean, that report did make some suggestions about what integrated care boards could do to help stem the flow of GPs out of the profession by addressing workload. I mean, this sort of links back to what we were talking about earlier in the Labour story about retention. What did London-wide LMCs say needs to be done on this? So Dr. Harry Rothwell says there's actually a whole range of things that can be done to improve the situation. And you know, one point she made was that Often the way NHS systems have responded to pressure on general practice is to build resilience programmes to support staff. Uh, But she said that the, the problem really isn't that people working in general practice aren't resilient. It's that they're trying to take on an unachievable task. So what follows from that, obviously, perhaps, is is that ICBs need to do more to tackle workload and take pressure off in other ways. And there are recommendations around that in the report from London-wide LMCs. So there are points around whether ICBs can get rid of policies that risk destabilising struggling practices further. So, for example, by stopping income from local incentive schemes when practices are forced to close their lists, which is a common policy that people have had in the past. It also suggests that ICBs should work with the CQC to try and make sure inspectors factor in things like demand pressures that are outside of practice control and may be contributing to to problems they're having. And ICBs can also support practices by considering the impact on primary care when they design new care pathways to make sure they they don't build in unnecessary appointments in general practice or add additional bureaucracy, for example. At least there's some real practical steps that hopefully people will take because it is a really worrying picture. We've been talking a lot today about the workload pressures general practice is facing. And we know that one of the many drivers behind increasing workload in primary care is the ageing population. Nick, you're our resident data expert. We talk about data a lot on this podcast, but you've been looking at some of the stats around the general practice patient population and how things have changed over the past decade. What did you find out? 
About 10 years ago, Professor Maureen Baker, who was RCGP chair at the time, said that general practice was at breaking point, partly because of funding cuts, but also because of a growing and ageing population in which more and more people have been affected by multiple serious long-term conditions. So 10 years ago, the ageing population was already a huge issue for general practice. And in the decades since then, numbers of older people registered with general practice have absolutely gone through the roof. In April 2013, there were about 9.4 million patients aged over 65 registered with GP practices. And in April 2023, the figure is more than 11 million. So it's an 18% increase in over 65s in just the past decade. Over 65s are also increasing slightly faster than the population as a whole, which is also going up. So we've talked a lot on the podcast about the number of GPs going down while the population goes up and each GP being responsible for far more patients than they used to be. We know, for example, that in September 2015, which is when workforce records or comparable ones go back to, there were around 1,950 patients per fully qualified full-time equivalent GP compared with nearly 2,300 now. So it's a big rise. It's about a 17% increase overall in patients per GP since September 2015. But numbers of older patients per GP have gone up much, much faster. So each GP in England today is responsible for 20% more patients aged over 65 than they were in 2015 and 29% more patients aged over 75. So over 75s per GP have risen twice as fast as total patients per GP. That's hugely significant for GP workload because patients aged over 75 or over have been shown to consult their GP about four times as often as patients aged 5 to 14 and around twice as often as patients aged 25 to 44 or 45 to 64. So patients aged 65 to 74 also consult about a third more often than patients in the 45 to 64 age group. So just that that group immediately underneath them in the age range. And that's all from research published in the British Journal of General Practice a few years back. So basically, when we talk about demand for GP consultations being at record levels, these figures around huge rises in older people registered with practices are really a massive part of the picture and of that conversation. Yeah, I mean, talking about the mythical workforce plan earlier, weren't we? We already know we're massively short of GPs. It'd be really interesting to see whether that workforce plan sort of does take account of this demographic change and factors that into how many GPs, other primary care staff we need to sustain general practice. I mean, I think that's absolutely right. There's a sort of benchmark figure that's widely quoted, the sort of safe number of patients per GP being 1,800 per full-time equivalent GP. But the thing is, if your average patient is older and more complicated, then is that figure appropriate anymore or does it need to shift? So that's, it's a really big question for those workforce planners to look at for sure. We've just got time for our regular good news story. Don't forget, if you know of a GP or a practice or a member of the practice team that's made a real difference to patient care or done something amazing outside of work that you think deserves to be celebrated, then do get in touch and we can feature them on the podcast. You can email us at gppodcast at haymarket.com. So this week's good news story is all about diabetes. This week, NHS England announced that it plans to expand low-calorie soup and shakes diets for patients with type 2 diabetes to all parts of England by March 2024. 
The diet forms part of the NHS Type 2 Diabetes Path to Remission programme, which is a bit of a mouthful, which is run in partnership with Diabetes UK and is currently available in half of England's 42 integrated care systems. GPs can refer patients onto the programme, which uses total diet replacement products such as shakes and soups amounting to 800 to 900 calories per day for the first three months, with participants monitored by clinicians and coaches, which is followed by support to gradually reintroduce healthy food and maintain weight loss, which continues for another nine months. NHS England said it was expanding the scheme after results of the pilot showed that participants lost on average over 13 kilograms in three months, which was maintained at six months. And by the end of the year long programme, people had lost 11 kilograms on average. This is similar to the weight loss seen in clinical trials, which suggest that this approach could lead to remission in up to half of people with type 2 diabetes. The scheme's based on the Diabetes UK Direct clinical trial, which last week also published its latest results that showed that this approach can keep type 2 diabetes in remission for five years or more. And even if people don't get their diabetes into remission, there are major health benefits of weight loss for people with type 2 diabetes. So clearly more support to help these patients to lose weight is to be welcomed. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And thanks so much to Ellie and Nick. I'm back next week where I'll be speaking to specialist medical accountant Lawrence Slavin about how practices are coping with rising inflation and what effect the new GP contract will have on practice finance. So do join me then. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the news affecting general practice on our website at gponline.com. 